All right, good morning, everyone. You guys ready to hear what the Lord has to say about who you are? Me too. I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. Man, yeah, so welcome, welcome everybody. Um, I'm holding on to a, to a cup of amazing tea because my throat's a little bit raspy, so if I carry this around, that's why. It's not my security blanket, <laughs> which sometimes it is. But uh, hey, welcome everybody. We are, we are entering um, our fifth week, but chapter four of talking about the book of Romans. We've been in Romans for... Uh, not counting the introduction, the first three chapters so far. Now remember, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church, this growing church in the city of Rome. Super influential city and a church that is growing rapidly, but a church that has not to this point had any direct apostolic oversight. So they're kind of just just uh, going with the wind and kind of free in the way they do, and they're kind of trying to form it up. And as this happens... They're starting to have a little bit of friction, a little bit of infighting, and a little bit of not anything bad. Their doctrine is sound, and where they're going is sound, but they're just some potential friction. And so Paul sees the need to write this letter to them, and he writes it from afar. He's never been there. He's never met them, but he knows that he needs to write them this letter just to get them all on a firm foundation. And so we see this letter open up with the first three, we call them chapters, but just the first three sections of This letter so far has pretty much been Paul wagging his finger at the church, saying, "Um, I know you guys think you're special, but let me tell you, your heritage doesn't make you special. Your education doesn't make you special. Your knowledge of the law doesn't make you special. In fact, nothing that you do makes you special. That can be kind of a hard thing to hear. And then last week, we ended up with kind of the way he, he ends the, the end of chapter 3 is, is he says, look, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where he leads it, which is truth. But if he's just spent the first several sections of this wagging a finger at you telling you're not special, you're not special, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It can be a place where you start going, huh, why do I even want to be a part of this new thing, this new Christianity, follow this, this Messiah, this Jesus, if I can get finger pointing anywhere. I can get accused anywhere. The devil follows me around 24-7 accusing me, so why would I sign up for this? Well, in this in this chapter, going into chapter four, I love it because he shifts gears. You can kind of see him sort of mentally shifting gears. And what he says is, again, your heritage, your background, your culture, your parents, your education, your knowledge of the law, how many times you pray, the things that you do, none of that makes you special. You are not special because of any of those things. And then he stops and he says, but guess what? I'm here to tell you that you are special. You are special. And you know why you're special? Because God says so. You're special, not because of anything you do or who you are or anything you could possibly accomplish in this life. 
Anything we would call credentials does not make you special. What makes you special is that you have a father in heaven who from since before you were born looked at you and said, you are special. And that's where we are. And I love that part. And so as we move in to chapter four, again, he kind of, he's, he's looking for an example. He's looking for an illustration. How do I how do I illustrate this to these people on a basis that they're going to understand? And what he does is he chooses Abraham. He chooses Abraham to be his illustration, kind of our prototype, really, for how a Christian should live and some of the struggles we go through, and more importantly, how to live by faith how to live by faith, because he's talking about justification. He ends up the last chapter talking about justification through the law or justification through the law of faith, which is written on your hearts. So we all have the law of some sort, whether it's that internal law of faith or whether it's the written law that the Jews in the Hebrew culture had been following for their entire life, their entire generations of following that law. We all have a law that we follow. And he's saying that it's none of that stuff that makes you righteous. Righteousness is a gift from God through faith in Jesus. And it's that simple. So on that basis, nobody, whether they've been living, following God, Yahweh, their entire life, or whether they're new to the game, no one is more righteous, more chosen than anyone else. And again, he uses Abraham to illustrate this point. So before we go into the scriptures, let's talk about Abraham a little bit. Why Abraham? And in order to figure out why he chose Abraham, now probably most of us in this room could kind of say who Abraham was, at least to a certain extent. We know some of the things he did. We've heard some of the stories. But really, why was he chosen? Why did, forget about why did Paul choose him for this illustration. Why did God choose Abraham all those millennia ago? Why did he choose Abraham to make the father of nations? We must have had some pretty impressive credentials, right? He must have had something pretty impressive to recommend him to God and to kind of highlight him above all the others. Like, this man is special. Choose him to be fathers, to be the father of nations. And remember, there's, there's multiple cultures who trace their kind of spiritual heritage back to Abraham. Okay, the Muslim culture does. Christians, obviously. Jews, Three major cultures all trace their origin in some ways back to Abraham. And then at that point, it kind of things uh, diverge a little bit. But if we talk about who Abraham was, now, first of all, Abraham was born roughly in the year 2033 AD. Okay, I say roughly, it's in that range somewhere. He was born in a region uh, or a city called Ur. And Ur is in what a lot of us have heard about in our history classes as Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, which kind of is bordered by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It's kind of in there. What we would call, it's, it's modern-day Iraq is where, he was, is where he was born. That's where he was born. That's where he was raised in that region. Now, this region was, was very fertile, 
Because these rivers, if you remember, those of us who remember our history classes back, these rivers would flood on a regular basis and cover that entire plain with this really rich, fertile soil. So it was a fertile place. It was because of that, it was a trade center. It was an important city, culturally advanced, uh, scientifically for their time advanced, obviously agriculturally advanced. It was a prosperous area. It also happened to be very, very close to where the Garden of Eden was. Uh, Many different interesting things about that area. But this is where he is from. He had had a couple brothers. We don't know about sisters. The Bible wasn't really good about talking about sisters back then. But if you think about, again, why he was chosen, there must have been something special. Let's look at, I, I found a lineage chart that traces his lineage all the way from Adam to Jesus. Now, this is not comprehensive. There's probably maybe 40, 50 names up there or 60. There's more people than that between Adam and Jesus. These are the significant ones, the ones we read about in the Word, the ones that we can kind of document. But the branches go many different ways. So the individual names are not necessarily super important. But you've got Adam up here. And then it goes Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Malahel. It goes all the way down. Methuselah, Lamech, and then we have Noah down here at the bottom. Then from Noah, his son Shem, and then it goes all the way up, back up towards Abraham where we have Nahor, and then Terah, and then Abraham. Okay, and from Abraham, then we go have Isaac, Jacob, you know, his sons go all the way down. Jesse is the father of King David. And then at King David, that line kind of splits. The top area up there is the lineage of Joseph. And the bottom is the lineage of Mary. Of course, both of them coming up and then ending up with Jesus Christ. What's that? Joseph up. Oh. But it says so right here. I'm reading it. Good catch. I had the right version. Jeremy downloaded the wrong version. So let's just ignore that. Good catch. You're so much smarter than last night. They didn't catch that, and neither did I, so you're smarter than me. So anyway, we look at this. The point being, ignore all that. Look over here. We have Abraham being, what's the seven degrees of separation from Noah, Right? And just like most of us can claim seven degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, doesn't mean we have any of his benefits or any of his characteristics or any of his, right? We we can just sort of claim that. This is kind of where it is with Abraham. You would think that being that closely related to Noah and then again back to Adam that, man, he he must have been raised in a super godly home and he's just, he's done it all the right way. And man, because he's, he's part of that royal lineage. You can go ahead and take that down. You would think that. But that wouldn't be correct. So he's, he's one of three brothers. Again, direct descendant, son of Terah. That, that was his father. He actually married Sarah, right? Sarai. I won't go into the whole Abram, Abraham. So just so you know, Abram and Abraham, same guy. Sarai, Sarah, same woman. And that's a whole other message for another day, but I'll kind of use them 
in some ways interchangeably here. But he married Sarai. Interesting thing about Sarai, Sarai was his half-sister, okay? Which wasn't super uncommon on the first branch of that lineage because there simply weren't that many people around. So you often found marrying sisters, half-sisters, things like that. And, and as the family tree started to have more branches, now all of a sudden you've got some more distance. By the time of Abraham, it wasn't super common to marry your half-sister or your sister, So that was a little bit of a scandal in its own. So he was already kind of like, "Eh, you're not not super upright here because you've married your half-sister. But also, get this, he grew up in a home that was not believing. It was a pagan home. His culture entirely, in that region, in that city, that entire culture was basically what we would consider pagan. They worshipped all kinds of different idols, But more specifically, in his home, his father, his grandfather, they were pagans as well. So we need to set aside that notion that Abram was like from birth. He was, you know, special and raised the right way and he knew all the things and he lived the right way. And it's interesting how we know this because if you just read the accounts of who Abraham, Abram was, you read that in Genesis It really doesn't say much about how he was raised or really even his history before that. We have to do a little digging and we come across the scripture. This is Joshua 24.2. I'll just read it to you. It talks about about Abram's household. It says, Joshua, this is the prophet Joshua, said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So that's how we use the word itself to actually do a little bit of research and find out that Abraham was raised in not what we would call a godly home, pagan worshiping home. You know where his personal beliefs are, we don't necessarily know, but typically you would adhere to your, your parents' beliefs and kind of practice those things. So this is... This is where we find. Now, he may have, you read some other things, and it kind of talks a little bit about having, that he had some higher moral standards. He may have been an upright, kind of morally, uh, morally sound guy, but he wasn't necessarily a follower of God. So that moment, you think that moment when, um, when God chooses him, when God chooses Abraham must have been a pretty dramatic moment, right? Like Pentecost with tongues of flame coming down or like the clouds parting and, and the, the dove coming down and landing on Jesus' show. It must have been a moment like that, right? Must have been something pretty cool for God to take this, this guy from a pagan family and pull him out and make him the father of nations, that's a big thing. So let's look at, I have a scripture that talks about that moment when God chose Abraham. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram at that point, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Okay, we must have missed something. What did we miss? The Lord said to, okay, So the Lord's already familiar with Abram. He's giving him these commands, and he's saying, I'll show you. Okay, we must have missed something. So 
Maybe if we're going to figure out what we miss, we go back to chapter 11. There's got to be something there. Let's go back to chapter 11. Let's see. I've got this one. I'll read it to you. The end of chapter 11 is pretty much kind of like some of the earlier books where it's so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's kind of talking about lineage and who his parents were. It kind of goes through that genealogy chart. And then the last verse of Genesis 11, which is verse 31, says this. One day, Terah took his son Abram, his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his grandson Lot, and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was headed for the land of Canaan, but they stopped at Haran and settled there. Terah lived for 205 years and died while still in Haran. That doesn't tell us much either. We see Abram introduced, but at this point, he's just the son of Terah. That's pretty much his claim to fame. I'm the son of Terah. You know what I think is a lot of times when the word omits what we would call, if you're writing a movie and you were talking about, okay, he and his family, Terah and his son Abram, and they're, they're going to move away and they start moving and then they settle in this place and they're getting ready to move on. And then you cut to commercial. <laughs> and then you come back from the commercial and it's like, and God said to Abraham, you're like, whoa, you'd be hitting rewind. Like, what did I miss? But I think so many times there are what we would consider pretty glaring gaps in the story and the narrative of what's going on. And I think that's not by accident. I know it's not by accident. God does these things to illustrate the fact that it does not matter who you are or where you came from. He's documenting these things in the Word so that we know his lineage and know where he came from. But ultimately, Abram wasn't special. Certainly not because of, of anything he had done or his lineage or lived his life a certain way. Or He had none of these things to recommend him to God, to choose him for what he was about to go through, what he was about to do. And the fact that it doesn't go into great detail on that one way or another is important because it's not important. It's important to realize that it's not there because it's simply not important. Who you are, who you were, before God chose you, means nothing. God can take you wherever you are. Wherever you are, whatever your background is, wherever your head's at, he can take you wherever and lead you to great things. And so this is where we are. So after, after Genesis 12:1, where he says, go forth, from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. He does just that. He uproots his whole family and he hits the road. Now remember, this is a man who didn't grow up with God. In fact, he grew up in a culture that if they were aware of who Yahweh was, they discounted him because they were pagans. They worshiped idols. They worshiped all kinds of different things. So he certainly wasn't exalted in their culture. But Abram hears from God and immediately obeys. 
There's no second guessing. There's no doubting. There's no having to talk him into it. He just does. And it looks like this. The very next thing we see after he uproots his family and heads out, God tells him this. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Wow. God is laying all of this onto Abram, somebody who just very recently came to know who God was. But guess what? God always knew who Abram was. God always knew who Abram was. And so when we think about why, why did God choose Abram? Why did God pick him out of all those names, the time and the place? Why did it all come together and point to Abram? Now, I talked about him being the kind of the father of several different cultures, the Jews, the Christians, and Islam all together. We talked about that, but that alone, that's just a result of the fact that God chose him. I want to tell you that God chose Abram because he wanted to. Simply that. God chose Abram because he wanted to. But there's another reason. Another reason that we overlook a lot. And this is what I want to really illustrate here. God chose Abram because he knew that Abram would be faithful in what he told him. God chose Abram because he knew when I tell you to pick up your family and go, he'll do it. God didn't choose Abram because of who he was, his background. It was because of his character. And it was because God knew that he would have faith enough to take his family and despite what he saw and maybe what he felt, that he would walk out into what God was telling him to do. See, God doesn't choose us because of our specific attributes. He chooses you because of who you are and your faithfulness. And the things that he calls you into are no less fantastic than the things that he called Abram into. Whether that's to minister at your workplace, to be a missionary, or to do the best you can raising your children, whatever that thing that he is calling you to do, that is no less fantastic than what he called Abram into. But are we always faithful in saying, I hear you, God, and I'm going to do it? This is what sometimes separates those heroes that we read about in the Bible from the average people who also did great things, but we don't read about them. Abram's level of faith in a God who, by all accounts, he just met is extraordinary. It's not impossible for us, but it is extraordinary. So we go back, go back to the book of Romans. Remember that the chapter ended with, with Paul basically telling them that your, your heritage, who you are, all those things really don't mean much. And then so we open up with Romans 4, 1 to 3. We have that on screen. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Next one. 
Verse three, for what does the scripture say? Remember, if it's in all caps, that's quoting Old Testament. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's all Abraham had to have righteousness credited to him. He believed. He believed God. That's pretty much it. And then Paul actually goes back and he references, now this is, uh, I'll read this to you. This is Romans 4, 6 to 8, but he's referencing Psalm 32. Psalm 32 was written by David. And, and Paul says this, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, and then he's quoting Psalm 32 here, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So Paul looks at them figuratively through the paper and he thinks they, they might start be thinking that this blessing, okay, this is, this is all Hebrew heritage. This is all going back to David. This is, this is Hebrew heritage that you're talking about. So is he just including then the circumcised believers or, or the Hebrew, the Jew, Jewish people? But so he sees that and he answers that right away. Romans 4.9 he says, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So he's asking them, is it for the circumcised, the uncircumcised, or what? Because the word says, faith was credited to him as righteousness. So who was Abraham at that time? Think about where Abraham was when God credited him with righteousness. And he actually answers this in the very next scripture, Romans 4, 10 to 11. How then was it credited? Okay, faith was credited to him as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. For all the men, I apologize using the word circumcised so much. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them. He chose, he, God, chose specifically Abraham, because he had faith, because he would be obedient to what God told him, but also because he was not yet circumcised. Now, if we follow scripture, we know a little bit later, actually, Abraham and his son uh, Ishmael get circumcised together. That's why it says he received the sign. He became circumcised later, grafted then into that culture, into that heritage. But it was much more than a physical act of circumcision. It was a circumcision of the heart, which we're all called to, to graft us in to that blessing and to that original promise, that original covenant that God made with Abraham to bless him. So then Romans 4.16, Romans 4.16 says, For this reason, 
It is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So let's take a closer look. I want to take a closer look at that scripture. The promise, the promise will be guaranteed. That's kind of a clunky statement if we look at it. The promise is a gift. The promise is simply a gift from God, a covenant, again, that he made. Where it starts to get muddied a little bit is when we look at the promise will be guaranteed. So a promise by nature is kind of a guarantee, right? Should be. That word guarantee there is actually not in, it's not in the original text, and it's put in there by most translations to kind of make the thought flow a little bit better. In my opinion, it kind of muddies things up a little bit because what we look at, when we look at what a promise is, the word promise translates into, essentially into a surety, a stability. And it's used mostly in, in the early context as the ground I walk on. The ground I walk on is solid. The path I'm walking on is solid. Okay, that's what they meant it for. So we use that time like, I'm on solid ground here when I say. Okay, we use that kind of that same thought, and that's what it is. The promise is something not dangled out there. It's an assurance. It's an assurance that you can count on it. It's stable. You can, you can walk on it. You can build your house on it. It is stable, solid ground. Where it gets confusing is we think about guarantee. The promise is guaranteed. So if you have a promise, that's wonderful. Now you add the word guarantee in there. What do most people, this is a question for all you guys, shout it out. What do you think of when you think of a guarantee? Money back. You get your money back. Okay, what else? What's that? Tommy boy. You were here last night, and I'm not going there today. Promise, certainty. What about, okay, what's that? No risk. No risk. In a perfect world, yes. You said money back. What do you have to do to get your money back on a guarantee? Okay, you got to buy something. You got to return it. Okay. Last night, I take back what I said about you guys being smarter than last night. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'll tell you what I think about when, when I think about a guarantee, and Tommy Boy is probably closer to the truth, fine print. Fine print. You get your money back, but only if you got your receipt, it's in the original packing container, you haven't used it, you haven't damaged it, you haven't plugged it in, you haven't done this, you haven't done that, it's bought on the solar equinox, you bought all, the, all these things, Right? And maybe it's just me, but when I think of guarantee, I think of probably not going to happen. I may have that guarantee on the box, but the chances of me actually remembering to send it back and have all the things and fulfill all the little obligations that I have to do legally in order for them to have to reciprocate and give me my money back, probably pretty slim. 
That's what I think of when I think of guarantee. Guarantee is a legal term. Saying, if you do all these things correctly, then this will be credited to you. That's kind of what, where did my iPad go? That's kind of what I think of when I'm thinking of guarantee. I, I, look, at it, I look at it skeptically, and for good reason. The more accurate meaning, not translation necessarily, but the more accurate meaning there is covenant. It's covenant. And there's a very important difference between covenant and guarantee and promise. But I want to look at that word covenant. When I do, when I do a wedding, bless you, when I do a wedding and I do premarital counseling, I'm very deliberate on explaining the difference between a covenant and a contract. I take all the time necessary to get every party involved to a firm understanding of the difference between covenant and contract. And here's what it is. You hear a lot of times, in fact, I've even heard other preachers use this terminology in, in a wedding service, and I think it's important. Marriage is a contract between two individuals. Okay, but what's a contract say? At its core, a contract says if the party of the first part fails to fulfill their obligations, then the party of the second part is no longer bound by this contract. And vice versa. How does that differ from a covenant? A covenant, much like what the Lord makes with us, is this. I will do everything within my power to fulfill every promise that I have made to you this day, regardless of what you do or do not do. That's a covenant. A covenant is not dependent on the other party doing everything the way they're supposed to. And aren't you glad that's how God thinks about us? He thinks about us like that. He says, I will bless you. I will be your father. I will look out for you. I will take care of you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you because I am God and this is my covenant with you. And it's not dependent on our upholding our end of the bargain. And therein lies the good news because none of us would ever be good enough to fulfill all the fine print of a legal contract guaranteeing that we would be the father of nations and we would be blessed by our father God. We're not good enough, we're not smart enough. Especially you think about going back to Abraham. The covenant that God made with Abraham was in spite of everything. Now think of the covenant. I will make you the father of nations. Bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. Okay, Abraham, think, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Okay, father of nations, I'm not even the father of one. I'm not the father of any yet. And do you see how old I am? Do you see how barren, unfortunately, my wife is? How's this going to happen? But when God tells Abram this, he grabs onto it with both hands because it's a promise. It is a covenant promise from God. And it's not dependent on him being able to figure it out. It is a promise directly from God. Not that he doesn't struggle with this. Actually, Paul 
uses a scripture to use Abraham's doubt to illustrate his depth of faith. This is Romans uh, 4, 19-20. We've got that on screen. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead. That's blunt, right? (laughs) Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to take an inventory of your situation and go, man, I don't know how that's going to happen. Good. We should all be in that place where we say, I don't know how it's going to happen, but... This is going to make my faith stronger because I get to see what God does with this. I get to see God do this in spite of what I see in front of me. And I'm going to give glory to God every step of the way. This is why Abraham is a prototype for our faithful life. It's got nothing to do with once you give your life to Jesus, now all of a sudden the road is is smooth and paved and there's no ruts and there's no ups and downs. We should look at every opportunity as, how's God going to get me through this? Because he promised he would. This is going to be so cool. And I'm going to give glory to him all the way. This is where he is. Abraham was credited with righteousness because of faith and his belief in God's promises despite what he felt, despite everything to the contrary. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start getting ready. Abraham could have looked around, seen his, again, his age, the deadness of Sarai's womb, and said, I I don't see this happening. God, sorry, I was with you. But then when you said that, I don't see that happening because there's too many signs to the contrary. I don't see how that can possibly happen. I'm going to pass on this and let you choose somebody a little more qualified. Somebody who's a little bit more maybe fertile to be the father of nations. He could have said that. How many blessings and promises, promises from God are left on the table because we're afraid to claim them. How many things has God spoken individually to each one of us? And I bet we all have one. He spoke a promise, or you heard a prophetic word somehow, and you grabbed onto that for a moment, and then you went, nah, don't, I don't see it. And we left it. We left it, and we walked away. God wants to bless you, and it's through our faith that we see these things that despite whether they look like, oh, yeah, I can see how that can happen, or I have no idea how that's going to happen. Wherever you are in that spectrum, our response should be the same. God promised this to me. He is a good God, and though I don't see it, I'm going to pursue it with all of my heart. Church, that's faith in action. That's faith in action, because if we can see it, If God tells us right now, I want you all to walk out and receive a coffee in the coffee bar. We're all like, I can see how that would happen. I just have to get up out of my chair and walk over there. And there it is. 
It doesn't take a lot of faith to answer that kind of a word. But what about when God tells you you're going to be prosperous? What about when God tells you you're going to be healthy despite what you see? When he tells you that you're going to be blessed in whatever blessing looks like to you today or last week or last year or maybe when you're a kid, he spoke that thing to you and the enemy has spent the rest of the time since then trying to steal it from you. Trying to convince you that there's no way it's going to happen. All that it takes for amazing things to happen is for us to be faithful to what God lays on our hearts. Especially when those things don't make sense. Because that's when true faith kicks in. That's when the faith of Abraham kicked in to say, I'm going to pursue this because you say so. And we know that Abraham wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes. He thought he would help out God by jumping a little ahead of the game. And sometimes we do that and we make mistakes, but that does not change. The original promise, the original covenant that God made with you is the same. The word says that the gifts and the calling are without repentance. How many of us were called to something years ago and we've set it aside because we think that ship has sailed now? I missed it. It's too late. Maybe that's for the next guy. The word literally says that those aren't revoked. That plan, that calling, that purpose, that thing that God had for you since before you were born is still what he has for you. So as we close up this message, I want to just pray that God would show us those things because I'll bet most of us have them. Something that God promised us yesterday, this morning, last year, or a decade ago that we've set aside because we no longer see how it's possible and we think we missed it. I want to pray that he rekindles that and brings that to your mind. And then our response is going to be to be like Abraham. I don't care what I see around me, but I do believe in your promise. And then we pursue that promise. Now, I'm going to pray over you. We have prayer team in the back. If you are having a hard time with that, some people are struggling. Like, I, I know what that thing is, and I, I even have a recollection of, of what that promise is, but I don't even know how to, I don't know how to pray for that. I don't know how to pursue it. Our prayer team is in the back. They would be happy to help you through that. But I think there's no one more helpful than Father God speaking directly to you through the Holy Spirit. So that's what I'm going to pray for. Would you join me in that? Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we love you. We love you so much because you loved us first. And through nothing that we did, nothing who we are, with absolutely nothing to recommend us, but just a pile of bones encased in skin, you looked at us and you see so much more than we could ever see. You see so much more in us than our imagination could even fathom. And not only do you see that, but you have promised us these things. And the enemy has come in to try and steal them, to tell us it's not now, we missed it, it's for another time. So God, I pray right now that you would, first of all, show everyone in this room, show them 
what that promise was. Bring them back to that place, that time, that word that they received of a promise from you about their calling, about a blessing, about a child, about whatever it is that you have promised them, God. Show them that thing. And maybe it's just a dim little spark, barely alive right now. Lord, I just pray that you fan that into flame. You fan it into a furious, hot, burning fire that they can't miss. And then Lord, I pray that you help us be bold, that you help us with our faith to step out and pursue that in spite of what we see around us, in spite of our feelings. Help us to pursue what you have for us, God, because we want the fullness of blessing. We want to serve in your kingdom where you need us, God. We want you to send us. Whatever you have for us, that's what we want. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go into communion right now. I, most everybody knows how we do it. At the crosses are juice and bread and crackers, and you can just dip it and take communion that way. Serve yourself or your family. Gabe and I will be up here with wine, and we would love to serve you. If you need to sit in your seat for a few minutes and just let the Lord speak to you about rekindling that, that thing that you thought was lost, whatever it is, then just do that. Then just take that time. If you want to move in the back now and talk to one of our prayer warriors, you can do that. Let them help you through that. If you want to come light a candle, whatever your response is to that, take all the time that you need. And when you are ready, then come take communion. Do that with thankful hearts, that it's through what Jesus did that we are reconciled. And all those promises that the Lord has always had for us are as alive today as the time we first heard them. Amen. Thank you, guys.
Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
we place our trust in you. Jesus, we just worship you. We love you, Lord.